Good morning. Thank you for being here today. It is good to see you. I'm really glad that you're here. We are going to be in Psalm 130 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your devices, it's also in the notes there in the bulletin, if you just like to look there. And that may seem like, why in the world are we in Psalm 130 the week before Christmas? If you were here last week, um, maybe you know why. And if you weren't here last week, that's perfectly fine. Last week we covered the book of Ruth. And so first of all, last week we did 80-something verses and four chapters, and you stuck with me, and I really appreciate it. This week I'm trying to pay you back. We're doing eight verses, all right? So just average those together, and maybe we're more where we need to be. Um, but we talked a lot last week, and I'm not going to recap all of it in detail right now. If you really want to go back and listen to the first 10 minutes or so last week, you can. Um, but we talked a lot last week about this idea that the Bible isn't a collection of a bunch of individual stories, but the Bible's one big connected story about God that God has told to us throughout history. Like This is the record of things that God has said and done, how he's acted and worked throughout history to reveal himself and make himself known. And that first and foremost, primarily, the way that he has made himself known most fully is through Jesus. And so you can say the Bible's about God revealing himself in Jesus. But that's the whole Bible, start to finish. And in that sense, the whole Bible is the Christmas story. That Jesus coming is God making himself known most fully, showing who he is and how he's working to save his people and make his people his own. And the whole Bible is that whole story, whether it's preparation for that, leading up to that, setting the stage for that, showing us our need for that, or it's when Jesus actually comes and it happens and he starts fulfilling all these promises and prophecies that God has given, or in the aftermath of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when he sends his spirit and builds his church and he's doing the work that he's still doing to this day on earth, that all of it is God revealing himself in Jesus. And so when we're in the Old Testament, and especially in a psalm like this, what's really happening is you have these people who had received these promises from God, and especially promises about what we call the Messiah or the Christ. And you may know this. Like every one of you all may know this, but I feel like I went a really long time in my life and didn't really know this and didn't connect the dots. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. Does everybody know that? And it's okay if you don't. Like we call him Jesus Christ, and it sounds like a last name. Christ is a title. And Christ is a Greek word. Messiah is a Hebrew word. They both mean the exact same thing. And what they really mean is anointed one. And in the Old Testament, it was the, the person who was chosen by God and then anointed, like they would pour oil on their head, to be the king. So the anointed king, the chosen king, the chosen one, the anointed one, that was the Messiah. And God kept making all these promises in the Old Testament to his people about how he was going to send an ultimate Messiah an ultimate king, the king of kings, who is going to fulfill all the promises. And so they're always anticipating what we now think of as Christmas. Like the whole Old Testament really is God making all of these promises that he's going to send someone who's going to be the one great Messiah or the one great Christ, which is just the exact same word, just in Greek. Well, you could say the one great king, the one great chosen one, the one great anointed one. And they're always looking for him, always anticipating. And so I really felt like it's actually really appropriate, you know, like seven days from Christmas where we're all getting 
pretty excited and anticipating Christmas being here. And especially, you know, if you remember what it's like as a kid when the presents are starting to get wrapped and you're seeing a lot of them, you just can't wait till it gets here. Like, this is, this psalm today is a, an anticipation of the Messiah, an anticipation of God doing what he's promised. It's a, a longing and a looking and a yearning and a hoping. And it's really, as we read it, a desperate need of, please, God, do what you've said. You've made these promises, and we need it. We need you to fulfill them. We need you to, to act and do what you said. So we're asking and we're pleading and we're crying out to you, and we are anticipating actually seeing the fulfillment of what you said you're going to do. So that's what we're going to read here in just a minute. And I just want you to see how it is in so many ways connected to what we saw in Ruth last week. It's connected to the whole Bible, and it's really closely connected to Jesus coming and being the fulfillment of everything that's prayed in this psalm. So, that's why we're in Psalm 130. I hope that makes sense, and I hope it just continues to help us really see how the whole Bible is connected. So what I'm going to do for us, I'm going to pray in just a minute. I'm going to pray that God will teach us this morning in a way that only He can. That it won't just be my words, it won't just be your words as you share the truths that you see, but that the Holy Spirit would really open our eyes and he would work in our hearts on a spiritual level where we will see God. And, and specifically, we will see God in Jesus. That he'll show us our need, he'll show us his grace and how he has provided and what he has done, and that we will know him more and we will be changed because we're encountering him in the truth of his word. So we're going to ask him to do that because he's the only one that can. Then I'm going to read this psalm. And I'm going to ask you to listen for what does this teach us about God? That that would be our foundation and our starting place. That who God is, the truth of his character and nature and how he works throughout all of history sets the stage for everything that we would know about ourselves, about the world, about our relationship with God, that it's all based in who God is. Not who we are primarily, not what we think we need, but who God is. And so we'll answer that question, what does this teach us about God? And I'd love to hear from you. I talked a whole lot last week, and so I'm going to try to let you talk more this week. And then based on who God is, what's God saying to your heart this morning? Like where you are right now in your life, these truths about God, how's he speaking to you in ways to comfort you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to challenge you, to change you, um, just things that God's saying to us, and then we'll wrap it up together. When we wrap up, I want to make sure I say this right now because Miss Teresa asked me last night at the kids' Christmas party, and, and if I forget, you know, you don't mess with Miss Teresa. Do you all know that? Like, everybody else on staff, maybe, but not Miss Teresa. All right, parents, when we get done after the songs and you go to pick up your kids from kids' worship, they're doing a couple of Christmas songs for us. I'll be up there with you for the parents. And so just, it'll be different this week. When you walk in, we're all going to sit down and they're going to sing their Christmas songs and we're going to get to see them up there. Um, we were going to do it in here, but evidently we've got like the most bashful group of kids ever. You know, kids usually get up on stage and one of Mike can love to sing. Like none of them wanted to lead the songs up here. So we're going to do it up there. But just remember to just go up there and sit down and we'll get to hear that up there. So Teresa, I said it. I'm good. You don't get to get on to me. She wouldn't get on to me. I'm kidding about that. Yeah. If you've got preschoolers, grab them first and bring them in with you to kids' worship. Thanks, Bill. Anything else? We good? I think Keith hit everything else. Oh, for the Q&A, sign up so we can buy pizza for you too that Sunday for the 8th if you're going to stay.
All right, we ready for Psalm 130? I'm going to pray and read this. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time right now, this time this morning and also this time of year. And in the middle of all the other things that go on and lots of good things that go on this time of year, I pray this morning, Father, that you would speak to our hearts in a way that you remind us and also help us see in new and fresh and deeper ways the most important thing, not just that you have done at this time of year, but that you have ever done in the history of the world, that you sent Jesus, the Son of God, to be our Savior and our Redeemer as the anointed and chosen King of kings, as the Christ and the Messiah and the hope of the world, that you sent Jesus to be your word that reveals you and makes you know that, that we can know you because you have spoken through Jesus and that we can be in relationship with you because you have saved us and rescued us and redeemed us and that you bring us to yourself and make us your children in Jesus. And so, Father, please, right now, by your Spirit, teach us from your Word as only you can. Open up the truth of this psalm to us and open us up to the truth of this psalm. Help us see you and know you and love you and trust you more. Continue to work in our hearts to make us like Jesus, to make us into your people and your family and your church. We need you to do it. We ask you to do it. And we trust you and thank you because you have promised to do it in Jesus. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 130. What does this teach us about God? Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. All right. A little bit quicker than last week. Let's see what you hear. What's that teach us about God? John said that wait is a four-letter word, and it is. It is. I think that waiting is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. Like, there's a side of me that when I know God's calling me to do something, like 
to do and to be active, that does stress me and stretch me. And there, there's fears that come with that and doubts of like stepping out in faith and taking the risk. And as a, like the call to do and to act, it's definitely, it, it challenges my faith. Like to trust God. Of, okay, you've called me to do this. You're going to give what I need. I'm going to trust you and follow you. Here we go. Like I don't have what I need for what you've called me to do. Only you do. So here we go. We're going to do it. And I'm trusting you to give what I need to do what you want me to do. Like that is... I mean, I'm, I'm not minimizing how that requires faith, and it does stretch. And, and, and so maybe some of you are bent one more, more one way or the other. Maybe I'm just, like, dysfunctional in both directions where they both stretch me. But, so that's hard, but I feel like it's even harder to be like, I'm not going to do anything. Like, I see things that need to be done, but I'm not the one that can do it. I can't fix it. I can't do this. It's you, and I have to wait for you. Like, if I act and you're not acting, it's pointless. Like, I can pour out all the human resources and human energy and, and human solutions and, and whatever. Like, anything that is of me but not connected to you. And it won't accomplish spiritually what needs to be done because you're the only one who can. And so I sit and I wait because you've made promises. And me acting on my own is not the same as you bringing about what you've promised. And I feel like it, it challenges me more than any other time to just say, it feels like something has to be done right now. <laughs> but I'll wait for you. It feels desperate right now. It feels like it feels dark and black and desperate right now, but I will wait for you because you're the only one who can do it. And so, yeah, that, and you crammed in several truths here on us about God, but you know, God is eternal. And timeless. And so God doesn't have to be in a hurry. And you can trust that God is accomplishing all his purposes. And then at the very same time, John said that we're a puff of smoke, that we aren't timeless. And we're only eternal in the sense that he gives us eternal life and eternal existence in him, that he sustains us forever in Jesus and we will live with him forever, but not in our very nature, the way it is at the core of who he is. Um, and, and sometimes it does feel like, hey, especially for this life, I've got to be in her because I am. Compared to God, I'm a vapor, I'm a mist, it's going fast, and and while these truths about God are, okay, God, I see who you are, you do here at the very same time in this psalm, especially right here, the, the, like, I wait for the Lord, there's the wait. My whole being waits. Like, all of me needs you to show up. All of me is looking for you and waiting for you and desperate for you. And then I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. And then just to make sure you understand what I'm saying, more than watchmen wait for the morning. How do watchmen wait for the morning? Anybody? Hey, do you know what the job of watchmen are? You know what he's talking about here? And if you want to speak up, go ahead. And you don't have to have it like exactly technically right. Just what's the thought there? You all go. Somebody, anybody. Yeah, Adrian said they watch every minute. You know, these are the people guarding the city in the middle of the night, and it's pitch black dark, and what's the best thing that can happen if you're a watchman? 
The sun comes up. You're waiting all night for the sun to come up. It's the only thing that matters, right? Like, I want to get through this night, and I want it to be over, and I want this. He's like, the way that they sit there and wait is like, oh, let the sun come up. Let the sun come up. That's all I'm looking for. That's all I'm longing for. That's what I'm So this isn't the kind of waiting where it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, I'll just distract myself and hopefully eventually it'll get here and it'll be fine. No, this is, this is like deep heart longing. This is everything that matters and everything I'm focused on. Right now. Like all of me wants this. And I want you to think about already in this psalm, one of the things you see, when that's what's going on in your life and that's where your heart is, God is saying, bring that to me. Bring that in prayer. Bring that in a song. Bring that in, like, come. And this, is, this psalm is God in his word showing us what it's like for people to be in desperate situations. Up here, out of the depths, I cry to you. Right? When you are stuck in the dark, black hole and you can't see anything, God's saying, you can cry out to me. You can tell me how dark it is. You can tell me how black it is. You can tell me how stuck you are. And you can tell me how much you are longing and looking and aching for this to change and for this to be over and for the sun to come up and the night to be done. I, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon on the Psalms. And he didn't, this, he was quoting somebody, this really gets you in trouble when you're trying to source something and like you listen to him and he quotes somebody else and then they may have quoted somebody else. But the gist was, he was like, anytime you come to the Psalms and you start hearing people's hearts crying out to God, and especially because you'll find some stuff in the Psalms that you'll be like, that doesn't sound right. Like if you really honestly read the Psalms and don't gloss it over and try to give like a religious answer, in the Psalms they say some stuff to God and about God Usually it's about God to God that really sounds like, whoa, can I say that to God? And, and the quote here, he said, God knows that this is how people talk when they're desperate. And he knows there's going to be times in your life that you're desperate. And either you're going to have an unhealthy emotional outlet for your desperation, or you can have an emotional I mean, a healthy emotional outlet for your desperation. What God is saying is, bring all of it to me. Like he's inviting you to have a real and honest relationship with him, an authentic relationship where you don't pretend you're always okay. Look, he knows. He knows you're not okay. He knows when stuff is too much for you. He knows when it's overwhelming. He knows when you're dying in a dark black hole. He already knows. And he says, come talk to me about it. Tell me about it. Let, let all that stuff bring you closer to me. Let all that stuff drive you to spend more time with me. That's what he's saying. And then bring it to me and ask me to fix it because you're trusting I can. You're trusting that I can do the things that you most desperately need. And so this, like, waiting's hard. And especially when it really, really matters. You're, you're guarding the city all night. It's like when the sun comes up, we're safe. <laughs> like as long as it's dark, we're in danger. And God, I'm tired, and the night has lasted so stinking long. And it's scary here, and I don't know what's going to happen, and I can't see what's coming. Please let the sun come up. And he's like, fine, tell me about that. Talk to me all through the night. Talk to me till the sun comes up. 
And then when the sun comes up, thank me for how great it is that the sun came up. All right, that was one, wasn't it? All right, who's next? God's love is unfailing, steadfast, unconditional. And, and Chris said, there's nothing we can do to make him stop loving us. And, and all this, I think, is built on this little phrase right here. With the Lord is unfailing love. And I really like some translations give you steadfast love right there. Um, other translations give you loving kindness. This is like the richest word that I, I don't know a lot of Hebrew. I had to take one semester of it. But if I was trying to write it out for you in English, a lot of people write it out H-E-S-E-D, either Hesed or Kesed or Kesev, pronounced different ways. But somebody gave me a book a few years ago just about this word, and, I, and it was a great book, and I read it, uh, the whole thing. And it, it just traced the word all through the Old Testament. And basically, it's such a rich word that we don't have any single English word that captures all of it. And, and we'll use mercy and love and grace and loving kindness. And, and then we'll attach all of these adjectives on the front of love to try. Steadfast love, unfailing love, just, just all trying to wrap our arms around everything contained in this one word from God. And it's when, when God, when Moses asked to know God, he says, you know, like, show me your glory. And God shows up and speaks and said, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. That, that whole thing, when he says abounding in love, like a rich in love, that's this word. That, that's the word that he uses to describe himself. And, um, and so when Chris says unfailing, steadfast, unconditional, like he's trying to grab everything that God is saying about himself right here in this one word. And, and there's no way to grab it all with just one word. But all of this, like everything that comes out of this psalm is because that's who God is. And it's not just, it is true, there's nothing we can do to make him stop loving us, but it goes even deeper and further, and we looked at this a lot in Ephesians, there's nothing we did to make him start loving us. He loves you because this is who he is. At the core of his very nature is this hesed love, this steadfast, unfair, failing, never giving up, never running out. You never get to the beginning of it. You never get to the end of it. Love, like it just flows out of the heart and core of this infinite, eternal God who's filled with infinite, eternal love. And so you aren't the reason he loves you. He's the reason he loves you. And what's so beautiful and wonderful about that is that if it doesn't depend on you, you're not the one who makes it happen and you're not the one that makes it stop happening, which is what Chris says. And if it depends on him because of who he is, he's unchanging. 
He's always been who he is. He will always be who he is. He's perfect and complete and full. There's no room for him to be something else because he is everything that would ever be right and good and perfect. And so his love never, ever changes because he never, ever changes. And this is why he's so consistent in all the promises that he makes and the way that he works in history and how he fulfills all of it in Jesus. That in Jesus, you have the full and perfect and unchanging love of God forever. You could never earn it. You could never work to have it. You could never make him love you. He chooses to love you because of the very nature of who he is. And then he works in history to guarantee you can receive that love. It's like all of his love's here forever, and we've all turned away from it and walked away from it and ignored him. And then he's like, no, I'm going to come get you, and I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself now because I love you so much that I want you to have my love. Like, it's, I mean, I think this is the way to say it, and it's so hard. Like Our words, it's so hard to say things in a way that's right about this eternal, timeless God. But it's like he's saying, it's not enough for me just to love you. I want you to know I love you. I want you to have my love. I want you to enjoy my love. I want you to experience my love. So I'm going to tell the whole story of history and act in the whole of history and explain it all to you. And the, whole, like the peak and climax of the whole thing will be when you see just how much I love you in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, add to it. Unending forgiveness. So, and let's just, let's connect it right here in the psalm with the Lord is unfailing love. And then the psalmist gives us a parallel in the very next line where it's like, he's basically saying, let me try to explain this more. With him is full redemption. And this is just it's such a rich word right here where the unfailing love takes expression of God's love poured out to broken people, to sinners to people who have failed, to people who have messed up, to people who have rebelled against him, to people who have rejected him. And then one of the expressions of that love becomes, I'm going to redeem the mess of your life. I'm going to redeem the brokenness in your life. I'm going to take all the things that you've made wrong and I'm going to make them right. And so that, that built into this unfailing love is this unending forgiveness. That, that all the things that you have made wrong by your sin, God is promising that he's going to cover them over and wash them away and take care of them. That he's going to take all of that that would be on you and it would be too much for you to bear and he's going to lift it off of you and he puts it on Jesus. And that what happens at the cross is this divine transaction where God transfers everything that makes you guilty and everything that makes you wrong, and everything that separates you from him, he takes all of that and he transfers it to Jesus. And Jesus bears it on himself. In that, and that's, that's when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like This is the Father, in a sense, turning against the Son for your sake. This is the Father pouring out his wrath and punishment on the Son for your sin. This is Jesus taking all of that on himself and bearing the consequences and the weight and the burden of your sin so that you don't have to. And then in that same divine transaction, God takes everything that's good and right and holy and righteous and perfect about Jesus 
about God the Son, and he transfers it to you. And he gives it to you so that he can look on you, and now he can be pleased with you. And he can love you. Like, he makes the way for himself to love you. He makes you lovable when you're unlovable. He makes you holy when you're unholy. He makes you righteous when you're unrighteous. He gives you everything you need for you to be right with him. All of it as a gift, like the biggest Christmas gift you have ever gotten and ever will get in Jesus. Like everything spiritual that you would ever need for a relationship with God, he gives it to you in Jesus. And God the Father and God the Son have had that perfect relationship forever. It's an infinite, eternal relationship. So the things that he is giving to you is invitation into and connection with an infinite, eternal relationship. So yeah, unending forgiveness, unending grace, unending mercy, all facets of this unfailing love. Like all of it, like the, the mercy and the grace and the compassion, all of that is just, it's like if God's love was a diamond and you keep turning it and there's a different facet every time. The light hits it a little different way and you see a different piece of the beauty of God's love, but it's all, it's all packaged and contained in God's love for you. What else stands out to you? So back up here. <laughs> Look at verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And first of all, I want you to think about it and receive it the way we should. Because it is easy to kind of start our own little religious ledger and, and first of all, we'll kind of stack up, hey, here's some of the good stuff I've done. Like, you know, here's the things I do that I'm supposed to do. Here's the way I attend church, and here's what I do in my Bible study time, and I pray for this person, and I visit this person, and I give this much money, and I, you know, like, here's all the good stuff I do. And, yeah, here's the bad stuff I do, but, you know, look, look, my good stuff, like, in our ledger, our, my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. That's one way we feel good about ourselves. Or we start a little ledger, and then we've got our ledgers with everybody else's names on them. And we're like, hey, look, my good stuff's better than their good stuff. My bad stuff's not as bad as their bad stuff. And, of course, the problem is, like, we aren't able to keep a ledger like that. But you can't see your own heart. Like, do you, you have no idea, really, just how much your heart can corrupt and pollute and twist the best things you do. Or, or just the wretched, dark, black depths of sin, like in, in the hidden in the farthest, deepest parts of your heart that God sees and knows. And you don't know what anybody else is dealing with. The things that look to you like a really small thing may be a great expression of faith in their life. So we can't keep those ledgers anyway. But then the other thing we do over time, like when I'm writing on my ledger, I tend to really emphasize and give a lot of credit to the good things. And maybe all the bad stuff doesn't really get written down. Like, yeah, that doesn't really need to go on there. And then I, I write my good stuff down and I write your bad stuff down. Like, we're really good at that. Like, I see all the bad things about you, and I kind of overlook the good stuff. There's actually, there, real quick, because this is, I think this is there's a spiritual background to this. There's actually a, a psychological theory or, or law has pretty much been proven by studies out there that, that we attribute, like, all of our good deeds, we tend to attribute to our character. Like, if I'm generous with you, it's because I'm generous. That's who I am. But if somebody else is generous, 
we attribute their good deeds to circumstances. Well, look how much they have. They, they've got way more than they need. They weren't really that generous. They just had extra. So I do good things because of my character. They do good things because of their circumstances. And then we flip it, and it's like the bad things I do are because of my circumstances. Well, you don't know what I was going through. You don't know what they were like. You don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. You don't know how tired I was and how overwhelmed I was. And there's all these circumstances that caused me to do that. It's not, that's not who I am. And then we look at everybody else when they do bad things and we attribute it to their character. <laughs> they lied because they're a liar. I lied because there was so much pressure on me. <laughs> right? They're stingy because they're stingy. I'm stingy because I was in need. <laughs> And so, good stuff, my character. Bad stuff, my circumstances. Good stuff, their circumstances. Bad stuff, their character. And I just want you to hear right here this honest, humbling look in Psalm 130, where he's like, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Nobody. You could not stand. I could not stand. If God really wrote it out, and he really wrote out what your heart is like and what my heart is like. None of us are coming out okay with that ledger. Like we are doomed. You will not stand before God that way. You will not stand on your own two feet. You will not stand before him and say, look, here's what I did. It's good enough. <laughs> it's not. None of us. We're all in that same boat. And it's a desperate moment right there. Like if you really honestly receive what God is saying to you about your own heart and the Spirit starts to open your eyes and you see what's real about your heart and just how self-centered and selfish you can be in everything you do, including the things that look good to other people on the outside, like if you see how turned in on yourself you are and how turned away from God you are, how you still reject Him even in most of your religious and righteous acts, and in the same way that you're turned in on yourself in a way that even the most loving things you do for other people are really about you somehow deep down, if you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sins and you revealed all that about me, who could stand? And then, but... God, if you were like this, verse 3, if this is who you are, if this is the truth about God that we had to pull out this morning, if the truth about God that I was writing down next was God keeps a record of sins, we're done. But that's not who God is. With you, there's not a record of sins that you're going to hold over my head forever. With you, there's forgiveness. With you, there's a washing away. With you, there's a taking away, a removing. All the guilt, all the sins, everything on that list. Here's my name and here's the list and you tear my name off of it. And you take this list over here and you write Jesus' name on top of it. And you forgive me for all of it. And you pour your wrath out on him for all of it. And then you take Jesus' ledger and it is perfect. It's everything we're supposed to be and we're not. It's everything that our relationship with God is supposed to be. That the Son obeys the Father perfectly always. And you rip his name off of it. 
and you bring it over here and you write my name on it and you treat me like it's mine. God does not keep a record of sins. God forgives sinners in Jesus. And it is really important to keep in mind that these psalms like this and everything we see in the Old Testament are pointing forward to Jesus. That there's this promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time and sin enters the world and death comes through sin and everything's messed up because they didn't do what God said because they didn't trust God and believe God. The whole thing's messed up. And he shows up and he's like, hey, it's going to be really bad. There's going to be all sorts of bad stuff that happen in this world now because of your sin. But I'm going to send someone who will crush the head of that snake, the enemy, Satan, that deceived him in the garden. Like all the way from Genesis 3, he's already making this promise to send someone. And everything that happens for the whole Old Testament, he keeps repeating the promise, and it keeps getting closer, and he keeps giving more details, and he keeps, in a sense, creating more anticipation and expectation. Because you could read this and say, okay, God doesn't keep a record of sins. Oh, great, we can do whatever we want. There's no right, there's no wrong. That's not what this is saying. It's in Jesus. These last two words right here. God doesn't keep a record of sins in Jesus. He deals with your record. He cleans it out. He forgives you in Jesus. Outside of Jesus, we're in a desperate state before him. Like this, he said, this is the way that I will make you right with me. It's through my son Jesus. And it's the only way. It's why Jesus says, look, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's as clear as he can be about that. So this wonderful truth, it is as wide and broad as you can imagine. Anyone and everyone. This truth is offered to everyone. He can deal with, he will deal with any sin in your life, any failure, any mistake, any brokenness. None of it is too bad. None of it is too big to keep you from God. He will deal with all of it in Jesus for everyone who comes to him in Jesus. It's that wide and that broad. And it's also this narrow. It's only through Jesus. Nowhere else. Everything he has done in the entire history of the world is in Jesus and through Jesus. And there is no other way to God. As wide as it can be for everyone. And as narrow as it can be through only one person. And that is Jesus. There's only one Messiah, one Christ, one anointed one, one king of kings, king over all the other kings. And that is Jesus. There's only, there's only one person in the history of the world that all of us, listen, whether we are believers or not, whether we say we're believers or not, whatever you say, anybody in our culture, in our time, there's only one person in the history of the world that we split all of history around his birth. Do you realize that? Like, people that don't believe in Jesus at all, they count down to the day he was born, and they count up from there. It's 2022 right now because of when Jesus was born. There's nobody else like that. How in the world is some unknown baby born in some tiny town in a barn to poor parents, and the whole world counts history around him? Do you know how absurd that is? 
Just, just that. Forget everything else. <laughs> That's impossible. It is impossible that that baby was born where he was, when he was, and all of history is divided around his birth. I would argue that you have more of a weight of burden on you to tell me how he's not the son of God when that happened than I would ever have to tell you that he is. Like, it's just too overwhelming. And everything God has done is about him and through him and in him. And God offers you everything in him. What else stands out to you in this song? Yeah. Yeah. God is full of mercy. So we can come to him in our desperation, and I'm going to kind of combine these because I think seeing them together is so good right here. We can come to him in our desperation, you know, out of the depths, in the darkest, blackest place I've ever been. I'm crying out to you, God, and I'm, I'm, I'm begging, I'm pleading, hear my voice. Listen to me. Let your ears hear my cry. So it is this desperate, desperate moment. But because of who God is, and the very next thing he goes to is, look, if you kept a record of sins, I've got no hope of this. You would not listen to me. You would not hear me. There's no way my cries could reach you. But because of who you are, because of your mercy, your forgiveness here, and then on down here, your unfailing love, your redemption, because of who you are, when I come to you in my desperation, so we can come to him in our desperation and, ha desperation and have hope and confidence that he hears and answers. You are not crying out to a God who has turned against you. You're crying out to a God who is for you, who loves you. And you're not crying out to a God where it's like, mm, he's on the fence, can you convince him? That's not how it is. He's already all in for you. He proved it in Jesus. He is in your corner. He is on your side. He loves you. And so you come and you're honest about the desperation. You're honest about what's going on emotionally inside of you. And at that very same time, it's, like, it's basically like this. And I think this is right here. I'm looking at what's happening, whatever these circumstances are. And one of the things I love about so many psalms, every now and then they'll give you something specific. Like here's what was going on in David's life when he wrote this. But a whole lot of them, if you were to read the whole Psalms over the next few days, a whole lot of them don't tell you specifically what was going on when they wrote it. And one of the things I think that's going on in the wisdom of God right there is it makes it so much more relatable, where it's like, whatever's going on in your life that feels like this, this is for you. <laughs> you know, whatever was going on in his life that made him write this, whatever's going on in your life that parallels that, this Psalm is for you. Cry out to God this way. Pray this psalm to God. And so it's your circumstances that make you desperate. It may be you. It may be your own heart that makes you desperate. You know, your emotions, your circumstances, there's where the desperation comes from. Be honest with God about that. And then it's who God is that gives you hope and confidence. 
Your hope is because he's full of mercy. Your hope is because he has unfailing love. Your hope is because he works the supernatural miracles of full redemption. That he can take broken messes and he can take loss and he can take devastation and he can take sin and failure and rebellion and he can work that into his good plan and redeem it for something even greater than would have existed if he hadn't used those ingredients in what he's doing. And so desperation because of us, because of our circumstances, but hope and confidence because of him being reminded of who he is, that our circumstances don't define him that ultimately he will define what comes from our circumstances. And so it brings us back again to who God is, knowing who God is, believing who God is, trusting who God is, having hope in who God is, having confidence in who God is, has to be deeper in us than anything else in our life. Like we desperately need to know him this way. We need him to keep revealing himself to us this way. We need to keep reminding each other that this is who he is. This is his message to us in Jesus. And however black and dark it looks, this is the hope you have in him. However hard it is right now in the middle of the night when it feels like the sun is never coming up again. It is coming up again. It is. He always has morning follow the night. It's who he is. What else? Yeah, in his word I put my hope. And so again, like the hope, our hope comes from God's word. God's promises. And if you want to take the exact same truth, you know, this is the truth about God and his word, but turn it into application for us, our hope comes from knowing God's word and promises. If God has spoken throughout all of history and has written down the Bible and he said, this is who I am and this is how I love you and this is what I offer to you in Jesus. And we don't hear that. We don't know that. You don't get the hope from that that God intends for you to have. This is why it is so crucial that we would come and say, God, speak to us by your spirit. Help us to hear with spiritual ears the things you're actually saying. Because it is possible for us to come to church and even to study the Bible and do all of our religious activities and not hear spiritually. You know, I mean, it's just one of many places. Matthew 13, this is Jesus himself on earth. Right? So way better teacher than you're ever going to have standing right here. Right? And he's, he's teaching over and over and over, trying to make the same points to the crowd. And so you know Jesus is teaching truth and speaking truth And here's what he says. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. They're looking right at me with their physical eyes and they don't see who I am. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. They hear all of my words. The the, the physical mechanisms that got to take place for my words to get into their ears, it's working but they don't hear me. They don't understand what it means. He says, for this people's heart 
has become calloused. It wasn't an eye problem. It wasn't an ear problem. It was a heart problem. They were hearing the very words of Jesus, and they weren't hearing them. They weren't hearing who he was. They weren't encountering him in a way that they knew him more, and they were changed by it. And so for us to take this hope that God intends for us to have from his word, we have to actually know him. We have to know what he has said about himself. And not just know in a way where you can quote the verses to me, but in a way where the Spirit is speaking to our hearts and softening our hearts with these truths, and we're, we're grasping them in such a way that something spiritual is happening inside of us, and we know this is really who God is. In my darkest, most desperate moment, when, when my sin is against me, like when I could be condemned because of my sin, God is still looking at me with mercy and love and offering full redemption in Jesus. That's who he is. So what, what should I do then? If that's who God is in all the circumstances of my life, cry out to him. Pray more than you've ever prayed. Pray about everything going on in your life. Pray about everything going on in everybody's life around you. This is a God who offers you everything in Jesus. So ask him for everything. Like he's opened the door. Walk through it. Like he's saying, come and ask me for what you need. I've already given you the biggest thing in Jesus. Do you think I won't do, give you the rest of the stuff? I've given you the Christmas present. Do you think if you want a pretty bow that I won't give you a pretty bow on it? What else stands out to you? Yeah. So what happens right here, and this is huge. See the gospel order right here in the Old Testament. Like we sometimes we think Old Testament's law and New Testament's grace, and it's not. That's not what's going on. God has been the same start to finish, and has always been. Law shows us what we can't do, and grace shows us what God will do for us when we can't. And it's always been the same story. And so right here, it's not. Hey, Lord. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But I know how much I sinned, so now I'm serving you with reverence, and that way you'll forgive me. Do you see that is not the flow of thought in 3 and 4? I, I know I've done bad things, and if you held those against me, I'll be in trouble. But I'm going to try to serve you with reverence and do good things now, and maybe I'll earn the fact that you'll be like, okay, yeah, you're trying real hard, yeah, I'll forgive you. That's not how it goes here. You don't do something to get God to forgive you. God forgives you, and that prompts you to do something. It's like, God, I know if you held my sins over my head, they would crush me. That's three. But you forgive. And the result of your forgiveness, and now, now I can do something, in a sense, for you. I can do for you what you have already done for me, what you are doing in me. That his mercy and grace and unfailing love, the power of his spirit living in us, you can say it a million different ways if you want to, but all of it, like his forgiveness to us, him bringing us into relationship with him, all of that then makes us able to do the things that we've failed at so far. The things that would have been the record of sins against us, the things that we will never ever be able to do in our own strength because he has done something supernatural in his own strength and we're now connected to him in relationship, and his life becomes our life. Now, in his strength, we can serve him. 
with, you know, in reverence is, is this worshipful respect, like seeing who he is. And, and I do love here, by the way, that it's, it's his forgiveness that makes us in awe of him. It's not, yeah, God, you are so powerful and I'm scared to death that you're going to destroy me. Oh, I'm in awe of you. And, and there is an aspect of awe to it. But it is, you are so powerful and you could destroy me if you wanted and you choose not to. You, like, I have no right to demand anything. I have no right to ask anything of you. And you give it all anyway. And I am more in awe of you now that you would turn your power toward love and grace than I ever could have been of just sheer power destroying me. And, and I, I actually thought about this spot a lot this week. It's kind of like quick participation here. Who do you think is the best basketball player in the world? Michael Jordan, Kobe, okay, Wilt Chamberlain, all right, so let's say Michael Jordan, Kobe, and Wilt, we've got them all on one team, all right, if I look at them, listen, they're better than me, that's just all there is to it, and if I had to play against them, their abilities, their talent, in a sense, you can see how I could be in awe of it. I could respect them for how good they are. But it's going to be a bad thing for me if I'm on the other team, right? Like how good and able they are is bad for me if I'm on the other team. That's simple enough, right? And so I can be in awe of them in a way that's negative. It's a negative type of fear. But if I'm on the team with Michael Jordan and Kobe and Wilt, the very same things that were bad for me are now great for me. Like, I mean, the very same things. Like, nothing changed about their talent, their ability, nothing, but it's great for me now because I'm on their team. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying right here. In verse 3, he's saying, Lord, if you chose with your wisdom and your all-knowing nature and your all-powerful nature, if you chose to hold this against me and destroy me, who you are, all of your power, all of your ability, I couldn't stand. It would crush me. It would be the worst thing that could ever happen to me. But because you forgive me and you let me be on your team, because you accept me, because you bring me over to your side and you welcome me with open arms, because of that, the very same things that would be so fearful and so awful are the very same things that are so great and so good. I'm still in awe of you. Like, who you are is just as awesome as it has ever been. But the type of fear and reverence I have now is when I look at the other guy on the bench, I'm like, can you believe he did that? I get to wear a championship ring because he did that. <laughs> like, all I do is hand him water during, like, with reverence. Michael Jordan, here's your water, buddy. You need anything else? Like, I'm not scoring for Jordan, right? Listen, a million times more. I mean, do you really see? Like, who God is, his nature is not changing. The question is, will you be right with him or wrong with him? And you can't make yourself right or wrong with him. You're wrong with him by the nature of who we become in our hearts. And he said, I'll make you right with me. I'll make a way. I'll pick you. Everybody else would leave you until last in gym class. And I'll trade my son for you. 
That's what he has said to you. That's how he loves you. That's how he values you. And listen, when that kind of love and grace starts to get a hold of your heart, it starts changing you. You don't serve now out of fear. You serve out of reverence, awe. You don't serve now because maybe if I do enough, maybe, maybe, maybe. You don't serve, I've got to. What will happen if I don't? No, you serve because you love him. You serve because you're in awe of him. You serve because he's doing something for you and in you that you could never do for and in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the way back to that same thing. The whole Bible is about God, whether it's our bad deeds or our good deeds. It's all all acceptable to Him because of it. Yeah, and just in case you couldn't hear Adam or if you're listening online, he said that both sides of it, our bad deeds have been wiped away because of God. Like it's something that He does for us. And our good deeds become acceptable to him. That, that now I can serve you in a way that's acceptable to you because of God. That both are things he's doing for us and he's doing to us. And he's like, we're really participating in it. Like we really are joined with him. But all of it is in dependence on him. That the whole thing's about him. He's always showing something about himself because he's at the center of everything. We, like that's, we aren't there. It's not about us. Revealing things about us doesn't help anybody. <laughs> Revealing things about who God is is the core of everything. And one of the places where you could really look to see what Adam said right here is if, and later if you just want to make this note, if you go to the end of Romans 3, that the way it says it is that God does everything that he does at the cross to demonstrate his justice or his righteousness, which seems weird. Like we usually say grace there, but it says he does this so as to be just and the justifier. That he just, like he's going to deal with our sins the way they should. They deserve to be punished this way, so he does it. Like he takes care of it in Jesus. He treats our sin the way it should. He doesn't just, he doesn't, lie about it. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't treat it like it's less. He's not unrighteous in the way he deals with our sin. He's just, but he's also the one who justifies or the justifier. He makes us righteous. He makes us acceptable to him. He does to us and gives to us what we need to be right with him. He does both sides of it. Right? The, the penalty that had to be paid that you couldn't afford, he pays and he shows he's just. And then all the things that you need that you don't have, he gives them in grace and mercy as a gift. And he's the justifier. The reason you're right with him is because of him. And, and it's just packed right there together in one verse together saying, it's God and it's God. And it's all good for you. But it's God and it's God and it's only through the cross of Jesus. What else stands out to you? Maybe one more thing. And then we'll worship. What's that? God is the ultimate authority. You know, and one of the, like, if God keeps a record of sins, nobody else can do anything about it. Part of what's built in there, oh Lord, who could stand? Nobody's going to have a response, and nobody can come in and say, okay, that's God's record. Well, here's mine. <laughs> you know how silly it is that we do that? Here's my record about me and about you. Here's what I think about you. Here's my judgment on what should happen to you. 
Nobody needs that, not from me, not from you. Now, we do need to be faithful to exactly what God has said about all of it. That's what matters. He's the ultimate authority. If he kept a record, nobody else can speak against it. And then, when he wipes it away, like when God looks at you and says, there is no sin against you, do you know what that means? There is no sin against you. There is nothing that anybody else can ever say about it because the one with ultimate authority has spoken and he has made a declaration in his courtroom. The judge has sat there and he's looked at you and he said, you're innocent, you're clean, you're acceptable in Jesus. And that means you are innocent and clean and acceptable. When God says something, the one with ultimate authority and the one with all power is able to bring about whatever he says. If he says, let there be light, nothing exists. And he says, let there be light. You know what happens? There's light. He says, let there be planets, and there's planets. He says, let there be animals, and there's animals. Whatever he says is. And he looks at you in Jesus and he says, let them be clean. Let them be holy. Let them be mine. Let them be loved and accepted by me for all eternity. When he says that, that's the way it is. If you want to turn to Romans 8, we're going to end here. Because it's everything we've been saying. We're going to connect an Old Testament psalm with this New Testament letter. I'm going to start in verse 28, and we're just going to read to the end of the chapter. And I may say a couple of things, and then Keith's going to come up and the worship team, and we're going to worship together because these things are true. I'm reading from the NIV right here. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is, this is full redemption. All things God is working for good. Full redemption. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's what God has done, the whole thing. Eternity past to eternity future. The whole thing in Jesus. And then listen to what Paul says. What then shall we say in response to this? If this is what God has done and who God is, what are we even going to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's the ultimate authority, and he has spoken. If God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who's going to speak up and say, no, what God said, it doesn't, no, I condemn you, I charge you. It's God who justifies. Who's he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you right now, praying your acceptance before the Father. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This unfailing love. 
this Hesed love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall our own sin, shall the dark black hole that you feel like you're dying in, will that separate you from the love of Christ? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how dark it is. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look right here. We saw these two things about God in verse 7. Unfailing love, full redemption. That he loves no matter what. Nothing can stop it. It never runs out. It never gets tired. It never weakens. He loves and he loves and he loves. Unfailing and full redemption. He's going to grab the whole thing. Everything in your life. The good and the bad, the worst, the best. All of it. And he's redeeming it all. He's working it together for good in this great plan that he has in Jesus where when he takes the worst things in your life and he forgives them, and he pours out grace and mercy, and he turns them for good, you're going to see his glory all the more. You're going to see his love that much more clearly. Like there's going to be good that comes from it because of who he is. But look at how who he is guarantees how this psalm ends. He himself will redeem Israel. Do you know why you can say will? Like it's a certainty it will happen? Because he has unfailing love. He's not going to fail in this. It will happen because of who he is, because of what his love is. Redeem Israel from all their sins. He can handle it all. He's going to handle it. He can take everything that you bring to him. Bring it all to him. Why? Because it's full redemption. It's not partial. It's not a little bit. It's not, well, as long as it's not too bad, it's not even 99%. It is full redemption of your entire life and his whole creation. But just look, both of them, because of who he is. He's a God of unfailing love. He's a God of full redemption. So you can know he will do this for all your sins, all your worst moments, all your mistakes, all your brokenness. He can handle it all. He already has in Jesus. He said, come to me, cry out to me, be honest with me, tell me what you need. Know me more, know me more, know me more. No more of his mercy and love and grace in your failure and struggles. And let him change you with his forgiveness. Let him turn your heart into the type of person who can now, with reverence, serve him out of love, out of joy, because you want to, because of the way that he loves you. You're learning to love him because he first loved you. All of it because of who he is. And nothing ever in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. He did it all. When we had nothing and we needed everything, he sent everything in Jesus. And so praise God for his Messiah. Praise God for his Christ. Praise God for the Son of God. Born in the most unbelievably extraordinary way that none of us would ever come up with. Who has changed the entire history of the world. And he's here now by his spirit to change you, to change me, to change our hearts, to make us his people and his church. He's still telling this story. Like it's still his Christmas story right now. And so I'm going to pray for us. 
And we're going to thank God for this. We're going to praise God for this. And so I hope that you'll sing and worship with us. And then remember that we've got the kids with a couple of Christmas songs as well. So let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for every glimpse and shadow of redemption that you let us see right now in our lives. Thank you that our little stories and the little moments in our lives become a reminder of your great story, that we get to be one little part of this great story you are telling of your unfailing love and your full redemption for your people in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that every time we see one of these moments where you take something in our lives that's broken and that's too heavy for us, that's too much for us, that you meet us in our desperation and you come to us with mercy and love and grace, I pray, Father, when we see those moments, that we will see the great and full work, the the real work that you are doing in Jesus. And we will know you more and love you more. And Father, right now, because of who you are and because of what we see in this psalm, I want to ask you for more of it. Let us see more of these glimpses. Let us see more of your work redeem the things in my life that I desperately need you to redeem. Redeem for every person here this morning, Father, I pray for your full redemption in their lives, in all the areas that may be on their mind right now, that we would see your grace and mercy and power work in ways that we would say, only God could do that. Only God could work this together. Do you see how God grabbed hold of these things and brought this out of it? Father, make us that type of church. A church where we see this happening in people's lives and we get to celebrate it and we get to say, this is who God is. And Father, may all of it, may all of it remind us and teach us and show us more and more and more. This is everything God is doing in Jesus in all of history. Thank you for the whole thing in Jesus. Give us these little pieces right now in our life to reflect that and show that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.